0: welcome to the bible questions podcast brought to you by biblequestions.org and the holly street church of christ this podcast is dedicated to answering your bible questions from the bible my name is brian and along with jeff we are the hosts of this program
1: hello and welcome to the bible questions podcast my name is jeff and along with me today is brian our other regular co-host brian how you doing
0: Hey, doing very well, Jeff. I look forward to continuing this series.
1: Yes, as Brian indicates, today is the second in a series on the subject of Calvinism. And so for our listeners who may not have caught the first podcast, we would encourage you to return back to that one, which was more of an introduction to uh, John Calvin uh, and uh, a little bit of a historical background for him and one of his main opponents, uh, Jacobus Arminius, uh, and between the two of them, uh, in some ways came up with the, um, I going to say, parallel doctrines, kind of like opposites, of Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, as part of the previous podcast, we also sort of outlined the main tenets of each, uh, at least within Calvinism as summarized by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, consisting of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and finally P for perseverance of the saints. Then we spent the remainder of our time in our last podcast going over the concept of original sin, that in some ways Adam's... Sin corrupted uh, his nature, and that nature was inherited by all of his descendants. And we'll kind of expand on that a little bit today uh, for our listeners, Brian. But any other uh, summary thoughts before we get into today's topic?
0: Yeah, just one other thing, and that is, you know, in our first podcast, we touched on why, why study this subject. You know, sometimes when you think about false doctrines, there certainly is the belief that you don't necessarily need to study false doctrines. If you know the truth, then you should be able to refute any false doctrine based on your recognition of the truth. But this is an example, this series of doctrines, Calvinism, uh, I think is important to study, Jeff, because it's so damaging, number one, and number two, it has permeated almost every major religion in the world today, either all tenets or some of the tenets, and so when people are led astray by believing, for instance, that once they've been saved, they're always going to be saved, and therefore there's nothing they can do to be lost. Well, as comforting as that may be, it's a false doctrine that could lead you to hell if you believe in it, right? So anyhow, we're certainly worth studying this subject as a result of that.
1: Um, Agreed. And as you indicated, it's one of those doctrines that has a lot of potential ramifications or uh, consequences. I mean, for instance, you know, you mentioned one saved, always saved. But also part of Calvinism teaches that, you know, there's nothing you can do. I mean, even the act of faith is something that God will give to you if he has chosen you. Which, uh, and if you really embrace that, leads to the consequence of, well, I'm just going to sit back and, you know, if God wants me, he'll you know, He'll call me. He'll give me a call. And uh, I'm not even going to be able to resist that. So when, if and when he's ever ready, okay, until then, I'll just do what I want to do. And that's if if you want to summarize one set of doctrines as the devil's doctrine, that's that's arguably awful close, isn't it?
0: Absolutely is yes, and and so I guess this morning, you know, when we talk about the subject of total depravity, the tea and tulip, as you mentioned, Jeff, uh, let's just start out by defining well, what is depravity? So we in our first uh, episode talked about Augustine, and. Calvin, who subscribed to Augustine's uh, theories, if you will. So Augustine was a bishop in the Catholic Church who came up with these theories where he insisted that while Adam was created by God in a state of perfect righteousness, nevertheless, his sin, what's often called the fall, the fall of mankind, brought such consequences upon Adam and upon his posterity, you know, all those who followed after him. Uh, That man became totally incapable of doing any good at all of any kind. And so, if you really dig into what Calvinists teach, they teach that, you know, as a result of Adam's sin, God killed Adam. And they refer to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where God gave a warning saying, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of any tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see that over in Genesis chapter 2, where God told them. In fact, you'll see in verse 16 there, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, if you know the story, you know, Satan comes along in the form of a serpent. He tempts Eve by saying, Hey, doesn't this look great to eat? You know, God's basically lied to you uh, because he knows if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him and so forth. So, throughout that lie, Eve believed it was. You know, tempted, gave into that temptation, ate the fruit, gave it to her husband Adam. Adam ate it as well. He made that decision to eat it on his own. And so once again, Calvinists will refer and say, Well, there you go. God said in Genesis 2:17, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they didn't they didn't believe that Adam dropped dead, so to speak, because we know in Genesis that he continued to live after that sin, but they they will teach that God poured out on him the fury of his wrath and hatred. And made him totally depraved and so that's kind of the foundation of as we talked about last week original sin and why calvinists teach that we as a human race are depraved and so they also believe and teach that death and total depravity are synonymous so they'll refer to ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 where it says And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins so they assert here that god made adam a slave of sin and as a result all of us um with the whole of his being in nature and of course their argument is that that nature is passed on to us automatically there's nothing we can do and so forth and so as you start to hear some of these you know you might start thinking well hold on a second you know if god made man wholly a slave of sin then why right after you know adam and eve when they had cain and abel as children Did God punish Cain for not choosing the right path? So you might remember in Genesis chapter 4, we read of sacrifices that were brought before the Lord. And Abel's sacrifice was made by faith. In other words, he followed God's instructions, and therefore his sacrifice was pleasing to God. Cain did not. Cain kind of did what he wanted to do, and so therefore his was rejected, and it made him angry. And so God tries to reason with them in Genesis chapter 4, basically telling him, you know, if you do well, you'll be accepted. Like, don't you understand that, Cain? If you just do what I ask, you'll be accepted. Well, he didn't do that. In fact, not only did he not do that, he became jealous towards his brother. And as we know, the story goes, Cain killed Abel. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 tells us, you know, Abel offered by faith and was respected. So. One would ask themselves, or we should be asking ourselves, well, how is this possible if he was wholly depraved, as suggested by Calvinists? A couple other things here this tenet further holds that all of humanity is lost and is dead in sin, uh, depraved because of Adam's sin. And so this depravity passes from generation to generation through hereditary. That's why you'll sometimes hear it referred to as total hereditary depravity. In other words, men are born in sin. And Calvinists will say that the spiritual or mankind's spiritual condition is so bad that there's nothing we can do to rectify it. or we we even you know don't have the ability to desire to rectify it on our own. And you know they one of their favorite proof texts that we also referred to in our last episode is psalm fifty one verse five. If you read the new international Version, here David says, or the psalmist that wrote this, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So that certainly on the surface would seem to say, well, yeah, we're all born in sin, but we'll we'll, we'll uh, get more into that in just a little bit. So the Calvinists argue that this premise of total depravity is not just a novel doctrine. There's someone by the name of Herman Hanko. Herman was a professor of New Testament and church history. Uh, for the Protestant Reformed churches at their theological school. And here's a quote from him. He says, It has been the confession of the church since the 5th century after Christ because the church has always believed that this truth is founded upon the Word of God. So their argument is that this, this, ca- these Calvinistic principles have been believed since the 5th century, and that's when Augustine of Hippo came up with them. Uh, but notice it doesn't go back to the 1st century, so we're talking about many years after the the church in the first century that we read about in the New Testament. So this was not believed until the fifth century, which in and of itself should tell us something. So anyhow, to finish this this uh, kind of intro up about what depravity is, the Calvinist believes that man can perform absolutely no good. Uh, they deny particularly the good of accepting with man's own will the offer of the gospel. So, you know, this means that, you know, our nature is so thoroughly corrupted by sin that we are just not capable of producing anything good. There's nothing which we can do as sinners, which is pleasing in the sight of God. Our hearts are dead. So that's kind of depressing, isn't it, Jeff? If that were true, you know. um, And and as we get into this, we'll see, you know, that they, they believe and teach that we can't read the scriptures, that, you know, as you kind of touched on early on, this idea of irresistible grace, unless we're drawn by God irresistibly, there's nothing we can do. But I guess when I read this, you know, I just think, wow, how depressing if all that were really true, right?
1: Oh, exactly. And in some ways, the this concept of a total depravity or a total inherited depravity is like the first. You know, you know we mentioned up, it's the T in tulip. It's the first of a, a series. And it's not by itself. It's, it's not in isolation, uh, as we referred to in our last podcast it's really very closely connected to and interwoven with the other points of Calvinism, as you noted. In fact, they form somewhat of a logical connection or a logical network in which they really all stand or fall together. And it all starts off with this concept that we're introducing today uh, called total depravity. Of course, that comes on the heels of what we talked about in the previous episode regarding original sin. And of course, Um, Brian, as you've indicated, you know, they believe this is supported by Scripture, uh, as, um, well, honestly, a lot of people who teach false doctrine, you know, do. Uh, But, and what they would uh, further go to say is that if you want to try to deny the concept of total depravity, that, you know, basically the, the whole Scriptures, you know, start to fall apart. Because if you deny total depravity, well, that means you would deny, you know, God's irresistible God's sovereignty, right, and His ability to pick who He wants to. You would deny, you know, the irresistible grace part of Calvinism, and onward with you know limited atonement, unconditional election, perseverance of the saints, et cetera. So all kinds of you know, stands together or falls together, as in many ways, you know, even they would admit um in fact there a quote i'm not exactly certain uh, where it comes from but it says it ought to be clear that if a man is not totally depraved then grace cannot possibly be sovereign to the extent that he is not totally depraved he is capable of doing good and to that extent he is capable of participating in the work of salvation and to that extent grace is not sovereign at all the two gr- truths stand or fall together. So what you get from you know, this particular doctrine, this idea of total depravity, is that it is essential to preserve what they view as the glory of God or the grace of God or the sovereignty of God. Anything that you ascribe to man, that man may be able to do even in any sort of small part on his part, takes away from God's glory, God's grace, God's sovereignty, which they view as as just being a very bad thing. So, bottom line is the emphasis is all on God, on His grace, on His sovereignty, on His glory, with absolutely nothing at all accruing to man, not even in the slightest. And I think, Brian, as we'll get into this a little bit later on, that is a... uh, uh, warped or extreme, maybe I want to say, uh, extreme position, that yes, indeed, God has done many wonderful, mighty, glorious things but he that he can do, but he's left open some stuff that man can do, should do, needs to do as an exercise of his free will. So, in some ways, it's, it's a very important doctrine along with the other aspects of, of Calvinism that kind of stand and fall together. Brian, back to you.
0: Yeah, those are, you know, some really damning doctrines, if you think about taking away the glory from God. Really, his glory, you know, we can't affect his glory, number one. Number two, we can certainly glorify him, but I would say as we dig into this, what we'll find is actually their doctrines are disrespectful to God, because it would say that God would be a partial God. Anyhow, we'll get more into that, but let's shift gears now into, you know, some of the proof texts that Calvinists like to turn to. So my, as with really any false doctrine, probably, unless they just don't refer to the scriptures at all, you know, they often, false teachers will often point to a specific passage or a set of passages that on the surface may prove what they believe. But as you dig a little bit deeper, look at the context, it's often really taken out of context. And so, for instance, as we go through these proof texts that they like to use, Uh, You'll notice that in none of these passages do you see the word depravity or original sin. Um, You know, you really have to kind of read those terms or those concepts into the text. And, you know, the other thing is, one thing that's beautiful about the gospel is the harmony of it. So often when you think about the principle, for instance, of baptism, baptism is found in so many different places in the scriptures, you know, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 22, many, many places. And so if somebody were to take a doctrine or try to build a doctrine on a specific verse, you would have to ask yourself, do you find that same principle throughout? Or is it just in this one verse? And how about if you look at the context around that verse? So anyhow, let's dig in here. For instance, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says here, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually so great example of a verse that on the surface it's like well there you go man's just wicked can't do any good that proves our point well we would want to ask questions right like for instance well does this verse mention the origin of man's thoughts does it say that he was this way from his birth or because he inherited this original sin no none of that's said in this verse so then we would say well then is it possible that these thoughts were their choice mankind's choice Um, Hey, we can look at people like Noah, and Noah was a righteous man, as the scriptures called him. Why wasn't Noah incapable of doing good? We know that he could do good. So anyhow, we have to start asking questions, right, about these verses. Another one, Romans chapter 3. Jeff, you want to read that for us, Romans chapter 3, verses
1: 10 through 12? Sure. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. (laughs) It's pretty obvious, right?
0: Yeah, and there you go, right? There's the proof text. (laughs) So we're not, we just don't do good, do we? Uh, But one might ask, well, um, saying that no one seeks or no one does good is not as is, is different than saying that no one has the ability to seek so one passage that might pop in your head as a part of romans chapter 3 that we just read go down to verse 23 and it says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god ah okay so it's because of sin and no doubt man sins but that's different than saying that the man man has no ability to prevent himself from sinning or has no ability to do good. Anyhow.
1: Well, even in the, uh, the, the verse that you mentioned, you know, uh, verses 10 through 12, if you look at verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have all become unprofitable. So it indicates there was a transition, a turning, a becoming, not that they were conceived and born in a totally sin
0: filled state. Yeah, very good point. That turned aside absolutely matches up with verse 23, doesn't it? And it was our choice. Of course, they would argue, well, you, you had no choice but to turn aside. Hmm? We'll, well, We'll see the Bible's pretty clear on that. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, or it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. They like to focus on that, nor indeed can be statement. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you were just to take that one section of scripture, again, verses seven through nine, you know that we're not subject to the law, nor indeed can be, that once again, may seem to prove a point. But as we talked about in in a lot of our podcasts, it's so critical to look at the context of what's being said in a group of passages. So in this case, if you back up to verse five, it gives us the context. It says in verse five of Romans eight, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So you know, men can choose to set their minds on carnal things. And if they do so, they are not subject to God and cannot please God because of their own choices. So that set their minds is a key point, And you would want to include that when you read down through verse 9, as we just did. We then move on to John chapter 8. So here's some additional proof texts where they'll look at verse 43 or it says, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Hmm, not able to listen to my word. Okay. Down to verse 47 of John 8 He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. Ah, okay. I'm not of God. Does that mean I was not chosen by God? Ponder that, right? John 10, verse 26, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you. So once again, on the surface, these look like, okay, yeah, God's kind of chosen who he's going to save and so forth. Well, hold on, because this book of John has many other passages. So for instance, John chapter 5, verse 40 says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's something else Jesus said. So now you match that up with John 10, oh, okay. You're not of my sheep because you were not willing to come that you may have life. If you put those together, well, that makes a lot more sense. John chapter five also, verse 42, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. Okay, choice. Now, some would argue, of course, the Calvinists would try to argue, well, you're not capable of having the love of God in you. No, when Jesus says things like not willing, two verses before, that says you had a choice. Okay, and then finally, verses 44 through 47. Jeff, I can get you to read one more section there on, uh, on this, in this area.
1: Sure. Okay, starting with uh, John 5, verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, or he wrote about me.
0: But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, so for the sake of choice, you know, if we look at this section of scripture, you know, they do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. That's a choice. You do not believe, verse 47, his writings, as in Moses, how will you believe my words? So just for the, the point of choice, if you look at just those two sections of this scripture, it makes it pretty evident that if we're not following God's word, it's because we either don't believe his writings, we don't seek it, we choose not to follow it, and so forth. So anyhow, just a few passages um, you know, along this line of Calvinistic proof texts and how they try to use, once again, on the surface, how these scriptures read, Jeff, to prove, well, there you go. Uh, you're unconditionally elected but we see the scriptures of course show the opposite
1: right well and even if we go back to the verse i think you quoted pretty early on back in psalms 51 uh, verse 5 at least according to the new international version surely i was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me and as you alluded to earlier on the surface you know, well, that's a pretty obvious statement that, that David, from the point of conception onward, that if he had died in the womb or died shortly after birth, uh, having been totally quote unquote depraved, as a Calvinist would indicate, totally sinful, uh, he would have gone to hell, even as a fetus, even as a newborn baby, right? uh and as you alluded before you know, that that's one of their main uh, proof texts especially in the uh the new international version uh but honestly if you back off a little bit and if you look at the broader context you know starting you know roughly verse 1 until roughly verse 12 you realize that this was not an essay on the nature of man but a expression of david's Repentance, sorrow—it's uh, basically a prayer uh, from David to God, uh, and even within our own uh, uh, you know experiences, you know we understand there there are situations we get into, perhaps not as severe as David, where you know we've just done something that we've we realize finally is, is horrible, uh, you know absolutely horrible, disgusting. There's a great deal of you know godly sorrow, regret, remorse, etc. In David's case. Um, basically, you know, multiple sins all wrapped into one. You know, first of all, there was the, you know, lust of the eyes, you know, gazing upon Bathsheba, who was a neighbor's wife, coveting his neighbor's wife, committing adultery with her, trying to get her husband drunk at one point, and eventually using the uh, army, if you will, to murder him. So he got all kinds of sins all wrapped into one uh, that David thought he'd gotten away with uh, until he was uh, exposed. Uh, and again, came out with you know a lot of, you know, repentance, regret, sorrow, disgust. I mean, I mean, you name it, you can see all that interwoven in Psalms 51. And, and so we come upon verse five, sinful at birth and sin, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You know, even today, Brian, you know, we have a. Form of speech called a hyperbole, uh, a purposeful exaggeration. You know, just real quick phrases like, well, you always blah, blah, or you never blah, blah. Um, Again, purposeful exaggeration to to really make a point. Uh, And we, you know, that could, you know, easily be the case here. So this is not an ironclad, ah, therefore, you know, this is the only way of viewing it total depravity, sinful from the point of conception, but perhaps, and probably more likely given the context, more a hyperbole, you know, basically to make this point that based on his multiple sins, probably with Bathsheba uh, and her husband, that he felt like, you know, the vilest of sinners. You know, actually, Brian, there's another passage that kind of is very similar uh, to this over in Psalms, chapter 58. Uh, beginning, or actually mainly in uh, verses 3 and 4. The wicked, of course, now we're talking about you know uh, evil people. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent, and they are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear. Now, on the surface, you go, ah, see, here it is again. But if you dig a little bit deeper, they go astray as soon as they're born, speaking lies. Well, infants don't speak, right? And they don't speak lies. You know, random sounds. Okay. So what we clearly see here is yet another hyperbole. That they go astray relatively quickly, speaking lies, sinning, etc. But it is a going astray. Not that they were conceived in sin, and born, but they were, you know sinless, and then go astray. Again, uh, an exaggeration, a hyperbole, a purposeful uh, exaggeration. Uh, we see something kind of similar over in Genesis chapter eight verse twenty one. Of course, this is after the flood, uh, and Noah offering a sacrifice, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, then he said in his heart, "I will never again curse the ground for man's sake." although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth nor will i again destroy every living thing as i have done and again within this context you know evil from his youth does not necessarily mean evil as soon as he is conceived but more you know from a relatively young age you know given a choice between doing what's right and doing what's wrong honestly we do have a tendency of doing what's wrong But that does not mean that we were conceived and born totally sinful. Brian, any other thoughts on that about this being born in sin?
0: Yeah, good passages. You know, it also reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter seven and verse twenty-nine, where it says, "Truly, this only I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes." And so, each one of us, no doubt. At some point, seek many schemes or sin, right? As Romans three twenty three, were like we were talking about earlier. And Jeff, that also shows, as you pointed out very well, that we it's if you're making a choice, we all logically can understand that a, an infant at birth isn't making choices; they're just kind of finding their way around life. But in general, at some point from our youth, you know, at some point, all of us, based on our own level of maturity absolutely understand right and wrong because god created us in his image and then we choose to seek many schemes or whatever you want to say right we choose to sin so anyhow uh, the scriptures are pretty clear
1: so i think that probably takes us to uh, another level of our discussion today brian uh, and that is choice i mean you you mentioned that kind of on the side a couple different times so i think in our next section we want to kind of focus on the fact that Throughout the scriptures, man does have choice, or has a choice, does have free will, an ability to choose between good and evil. Brian, you want to start us off?
0: Yeah, there's definitely many passages that teach choice, and, and one of them we referenced a little while ago in the podcast, and that was from Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Of course, this is once again after God rejected Cain's sacrifice because he did not offer it by faith or according to God's instructions like his brother Abel. So Cain became angry, and here's what God said to him after he became angry. Verse 6, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. So we all understand this idea of doing well or not doing well is based on choice. And Cain made the choice not to do well or not to follow God's instructions. So anyhow, you know, once again, as we kind of alluded to earlier, it was right after Adam and Eve sinned. Well, some uh, maybe not right after, but, you know, <laughs> a few years after they sinned. And, you know, they these were the first descendants of Adam and Eve and you know, immediately after this supposed fall. So then you would ask, well, why would he have choice, right, if he was inherently sinful? Uh, You know, another area, Jeff, we were talking about how the NIV changed the wording in Psalm 51 to give the impression that we're born in sin. Well, they've done the same thing with Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 23. So if you have the NIV and you were to read that, you would see here that it says, can the Ethiopian... Change his skin or the leper its spots, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So that kind of comes across as well, it's impossible, right? We can't do good, basically what it's saying. But if you look at every other translation, New King James, King James, New American Standard, English Standard Version, they all word it differently and more accurately. So they have it say, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil so there it conveys a choice so you know just a note we've talked about this in fact jeff we had an entire podcast right talking about translations and where did the bible come from and that sort of thing and you just have to be careful because you know for instance the new world translation was changed by the jehovah's witnesses to remove the deity of christ Well, the NIV is very Calvinistic. The translators work, they lean, you know, towards Calvinistic principles. And so they've made changes in verses like this. And so, you know, once again, you just have to be aware. They, you know, they could be wording it where it seems impossible. Uh, but more accurately, it, it teaches that we have a choice. So anyhow, when we we look at these passages, we would ask some questions, right? Does it state why they cannot good do, uh, do good? Does it say they cannot choose good, or is it perhaps that they refuse to do good because they like their bad habits? And that's really what it is. In fact, if you look at Judah, who's being talked about there in Jeremiah, we see over in Jeremiah chapter six and verse sixteen, thus says the Lord. Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So they weren't interested in following God's word, but I think the bigger point here is they had a choice, right? And they said, we will not. Jeremiah chapter uh, 29, verse 13. Here, and you will seek me. This is God speaking, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So, once again, choice, right? Jeff, over to you.
1: Yeah, while you're talking, I was reminded. In fact, I just went into a, a Bible a keyword search kind of thing and typed in the word choice. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, Joshua chapter 24, uh, verses 14, 15. I'll just kind of offer up for our listeners. Now, therefore, Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there you have it in in very clear language, a choice being, you know, presented to the people. Now, some people might say, uh, well, you know, isn't there, you know, various verses that talk about, you know, people and, you know, the gospel and, you know, them ignoring the gospel? And and there are. I mean, I'm reminded of like Luke uh, chapter 8, verse 12 in the parable of the sower, where the sower sows the seed and some of the seed, you know, hits the hard ground. Uh, the pathway, if you will, beside the field and just sort of bounce off, bounces off the soil. Now, at least in that verse, however, notice those by the wayside, as as Jesus explains the parable, are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So here we have, you know, a combination, both of the person and the hardness of their heart, but also the devil as well. And who is ultimately (laughs) responsible for getting man to sin. Uh, Similarly, in Romans chapter 6, verse 19, where the Holy Spirit, through Paul, writes, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. You know, here's a choice. You know, you used to present your body to do you know, evil things, now present your body to do good things. Now again, it's a choice, a choice based on desire. Similarly, a couple chapters over in Romans, uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Hey Brian, you want to go ahead and read that one, Romans 8, 5 through 8?
0: Yeah, here it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God.
1: Cannot please because it's impossible or cannot because they've made a choice,
0: Brian? Right, exactly. That's the key, right? They made a choice not to.
1: Uh, Exactly. Which is interesting because under the doctrine of Calvinism, it's God who's making the choice. But in this verse, it's man who's making the choice. Interesting, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you would think man would have nothing to do with it, right, if God already made the choice.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, the... Uh, That we see over in in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, where Jesus condemns those Jews specifically who killed the prophets uh, and those who basically pointed out their sins. So he says here in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing choice right pretty obvious it was their choice not to follow jesus revelation 22 17 and whosoever will let him take of that water of life freely once again choice and then hebrews 11 6, where it talks about faith and it says you know he is a rewarder as in god he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him and so anyhow these are just a few passages jeff no doubt Many others, right, that, as you pointed out, Joshua 24, many others that talk about the fact that it clearly is our choice.
1: Right. Well, and even when it comes to uh, temptation, you know, we can see there's passages that talk about us sinning after being tempted when we're carried away and enticed by our own lusts, uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Uh, not that we are born a sinner, not that we're born eternally lost in sin, um, but that we are, you know, tempted and succumbed to those temptations and carried away and enticed by lusts. Um, that also uh, reminds me of uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 6, uh, that sort of highlights this point, which says, Before For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. You know, prophetic uh, or a prophecy of of things that would come in the future. But notice, referring to a particular child, before they're old enough to refuse evil, choose good, etc. So again, a choice, which which we will continue to see as we uh, keep unwrapping these various verses. Brian?
0: Yeah, I really do like that passage in Isaiah because, you know, when it says child shall know to refuse, well, that, you know, helps us to understand that they have to learn. They have to understand and therefore make a choice. And it's not like they're set on doing evil only, you know, so anyhow, Exactly. You know, when we look at the nature of man, we, and we look at passages like Matthew chapter 18 verses three and four. Well, let's read that here. It says, assuredly, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So when you think about what Jesus is teaching his disciples there is that Christians are to be like little children. Now, we think about well, what, what what is like a little child? Well, a child is, you know, innocent. Uh, I love how children just tell you what they think. There's no filters. They don't try to. You know, make sure that what they're saying isn't offensive because they don't really even understand that concept. They're just telling it like it is, right? They're innocent. And so, you know, when you think about a child being accountable for sin, sometimes we'll say, well, they're saved because they don't understand good and evil. And as we kind of just touched on in Isaiah chapter seven, they have to learn. And some learn pretty young, and some it takes a little longer for them to fully understand that saying like something that's not true is a lie and a lie is a sin and we shouldn't sin and so forth so you know jeff i find it kind of interesting we we all see this point when it comes to like grade school and you know learning math and history and writing and all of those things Uh, none of us assume that a child would just know those things therefore could be held accountable to know them but yet when it comes to spiritual things you know, once again, Calvinists would just have you believe, well, these are just sinful kids, and all they want to do is evil. Not the kids I look at. <laughs> A lot of them are very innocent, in fact, are kind, and, you know, or want to do what's right. So.
1: Right, exactly. And, and interestingly, that in this particular passage you mentioned with Matthew 18, that he holds up children as, to, to some degree, like role models. <laughs> like, you need to become like them. Like, evil, sinful, demonic little critters? Well, no, <laughs> certainly not.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. He wouldn't be asking them to follow that if that was part of their nature. And we see something similar over in Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 16, where it says, Jesus called called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verse 17, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. I think, Most of us understand, once again, you know, children are like sponges and they, they learn and they absorb and they evaluate, well, they're willing to accept things. And so therefore as adults, you know, we can, our consciences can be seared. We can become what we might call jaded, you know, we are skeptical, whatever term you want to use. And therefore we may not be as likely or receptive. Or maybe we start believing false tenets like this of Calvinism, and it makes us doubt. Well, children aren't like that. And so therefore, Jesus is saying that we need to be like them. And Jesus certainly wouldn't ask us to be like them if they were sinful from birth. Um, so anyhow, I, I think we've made that point And, you know, we... Jesus, or Paul, I guess, uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20 says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. So I think that also helps to clarify it, doesn't it,
1: Jeff? It does. Uh, In fact, there are some scriptures that, you know, highlight this point in terms of personal responsibility, personal accountability. Uh, Excellent passage over in Ezekiel from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, within the context, father and son. But now if you apply, apply that broadly, how about Adam? and his sons. Well, same would be true. You know, the the sons of Adam shall not bear the guilt of the father Adam, uh, etc. You know, the righteousness, the righteous righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, upon the sons that are righteous, uh, the sons that are wicked be upon them. Uh, in fact, we see that echoed in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, talking about uh, God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Again, each one according to his deeds. Not each one according to Adam's deeds, and this, and you know, other passages, you know, clearly teach, um, you know, from the Bible, that you know, we all become guilty, and are cut off or estranged from God, when we, by our own choice, choose to sin. And and I really do like the the passage you point out earlier, Ecclesiastes chapter seven verse twenty nine. Truly only this I found, that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. Um, And of course, uh, there's there's another kind of a logical uh, conundrum, if you will, that indeed, if there is such a thing called total inherited depravity, and human beings totally depraved by hereditary, by heredity, how could Jesus have been born sinless? Of course, Calvinists will will spawn off all kinds of interesting doctrines about well, you know, her, uh, sin and inherited nature comes through the male, not through the female; it comes through the father, not through the mother. Blah, you know, nothing in the scriptures about that uh, at all.
0: Brian, back over to you. Yeah. So before we get into questions that have been submitted on this, just want to talk about the Calvinist Bible, and this is kind of you might say tongue in cheek or or to be. A little funny, but it's also very, I think it makes the point that, you know, if if this concept or any of these concepts of Calvinism were true, the Bible would reflect that. And so, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 59, verses one and two, behold, the the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. You know, if you read your Bible, it'll say, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Well, it could have been, God certainly could have put in there, but Adam's iniquities have separated you from God and Adam's sins have hidden his face from you. But there are no passages that say that. Um, if, if you believed in these tenets of Calvinism, then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it would tell us Jesus died to save his people from Adam's sins. But it doesn't. It says to save his people from their sins. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. It doesn't say that Adam's sins may be blotted out. A couple other ones here. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as one man entered uh, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Once again, it doesn't say Death spread to all men because of Adam's sin. Anyhow, there are several others. I'll just put a couple more out there our listeners can look at on their own. Romans chapter 14, and verse 12. You know, we will give an account of ourselves to God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. You know, we're, being, we're dead in our trespasses um, and, and so forth. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. God says when he was talking about this new covenant that we all live under today, That he would be merciful to their unrighteousness, to their sins, and their lawless deeds. It doesn't say Adam's sins and Adam's lawless deeds. So anyhow, Jeff, I think that kind of makes the point, right? It's just, uh, you know, the Bible could have, certainly the Holy Spirit could have revealed these principles through God's word if they were true. But we never see anything about Adam's sins being in there in that way.
1: Right, a good point. Now, you know, admittedly, there are a couple of verses like you've mentioned that you, know, on the surface would seem to indicate this concept of total depravity. But when you look at those verses in their context, when you look at a, a whole lot of other verses that talk about the nature of man, the nature of sin, the nature of choice and free will, uh, I think it's pretty clear that, yes, indeed, we are born sinless or safe that we choose to go astray uh, and that indeed it is um, up to us, you know, to make a a decision, uh, to make a choice. Brian, I think that pretty much uh, takes us up to our questions, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. So we want to look at some questions that were submitted on this tenet of Calvinism, total depravity. And so the first one for you, Jeff, comes from Neil. And Neil asks, "Is hamartia, if I'm saying that correctly, hamartia, the Greek New Testament word for sin in First John one nine, the sinful nature we inherited from Adam?"
1: Yeah, good question. And honestly, I don't know how to pronounce that Greek word either. I mean, I think I may have heard it, harmatia, but uh, okay. you know, I I can't speak <laughs> I can't speak Greek, but that's okay. So when we go to First John uh, chapter one verse nine, it reads, "If we confess our sin." He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what Neil is is asking, of course, the the word there for uh, sin is this Greek word we're talking about. He's asking, is that mention of sin our sinful nature? Uh, So if you did a substitution, he's asking, would the passage read something like this? If we confess our sinful nature... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sinful nature and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, first of all, at least according to Calvinism, you know, they would certainly not view the verse as teaching that. Uh, because it's not us confessing our sinful nature and God will forgive us. It's we're totally depraved and can't do anything at all related to our salvation. That it's up to God to enable us to, uh, you know, have faith. So. You know, certainly wouldn't interpret the verse uh, that way from a Calvinistic perspective. Uh, but more importantly, you know, we wouldn't interpret the verse that way from a grammar. As it turns out, that Greek word uh, "hamartia" or "hamartia" is plural. If we confess our sins, interesting, not sinful nature, not singular, and also that confess, interesting from a grammar perspective. Is in the present tense, you know. If we are confessing our sin, if you know, as an ongoing kind of thing, God is faithful and just. Forgive us of our sins. Well, now that starts to make a totally different case that we are talking about our individual sins, you know, violation of God's will, uh, and that we need to, you know, be willing to confess those on an ongoing basis. And when we do, God is faithful. He'll forgive us. In fact, even if you look at the uh, broader context, that's exactly what the context is saying. You know, it's not a one-time God will forgive us of our sinful nature. No, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, For instance, uh, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know, an ongoing manner of life. Uh, Likewise, the next verse, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, it's an ongoing kind of thing. And likewise, if you were to keep going into uh, chapter 2, very same thought uh, that the Holy Spirit through John Hill, continues. My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. Same word. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, a couple podcasts from now, Brian, I think we're going to talk about a limited atonement. I suspect we'll be coming back to this verse, uh, so we'll just leave that as a teaser for now. But continuing on, verse 3, By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And he who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he want." And of course, I suspect Brian will be coming back to this verse again as well when we start talking about, you know, once saved, always saved, or perseverance of the saints, or it doesn't matter once you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can live however you want to live. Well, not according to 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2, is it?
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, if you think about it, if we were wholly inclined to do evil, not capable of doing good, well, then certainly if God chose who he was going to save, then what would be the point of repentance? If you think about it, I mean... It's almost like, well, hold on, God. You know, if if I'm wholly inclined to do evil, and you, it was your choice to make mankind this way after Adam's sin, then why should I even repent and confess my sins? Because after all, I can't help myself, right? Anyway. right. It's,
1: not, it's not my fault. It's like you know, breathing air and having to drink water. You know, don't don't blame me for having to to breathe and eat and drink, <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> exactly.
1: So Christopher writes in. He says, "I would like to know." What happens to a child who is taken from the earth at an early age before they're able to make a conscious decision to accept Christ as their Savior in order to come to salvation? Now, he asserts, as I know, we are all born into sin. Of course, we obviously question that. And sin is not able to enter into heaven. And so our salvation comes by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Now for a young child and infant, they're not yet able to make that decision and yet are still born into sin according to Romans 3:23. So again, what happens to the young children when they're taken early in life? Sounds like Brian, he's coming up coming to us from a kind of a calvinistic background and is kind of seeing some you know, a little bit of contradiction there, isn't he?
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think this is a good example of the confusion that's caused when you start talking about infant baptism and the reason why you would do that. Uh, And it's just sad because he's exactly right. You know, an innocent child, before they're able to make a conscious decision, it wouldn't be appropriate for that child to be held accountable for sin. And, you know, to me, it's just a, a damning doctrine to say that child is lost because they weren't baptized, for instance, and they inherited Adam's sin. So, you know, what we do learn from the scriptures, and we've touched on some of these principles, but, you know, children up to a certain age, which, you know, does vary based on their level of maturity. Kids learn at a different pace. They they mature at a different pace, if you will. They're not capable of understanding the truth and therefore are not held accountable to the law of Christ. How do we know this? Well, for instance, if you look at 1 John chapter 3, Verse four, and I like the King James rendering here. It says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So I like that as a definition, right? Sin at a base level is just a transgression of the law. What law? God's law, right? That he has given us. So I think we would all agree just logically for someone to transgress God's law, they would have to understand the law. Well, children do not understand the law enough to know if they are transgressing it. I don't think anybody could make that argument, right? So First John 3, 4 is defining what sin is. Children do not meet that definition because, once again, they don't understand enough to know that they are, in fact, transgressing it. So as we've talked about, you know, to be saved, the children must be capable of not only realizing the difference between right and wrong, but also, as the scriptures teach, they have to be able to believe that jesus is the son of god they have to confess that belief before men uh, in addition they have to be convicted enough of their sin to desire to repent of that sin and turn to it from god and i'll give our listeners a few passages we've covered these many times in previous podcasts and also on our website under the steps to salvation button you'll also see reference to these and many other passages like mark sixteen sixteen. John 8, 24, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. And, and I won't go through what every one of these talks about, but like Acts chapter 2, it shows that they were cut to the heart. They were convicted when they were told by Peter that it was them and their sin that put Jesus on the cross. Uh, Romans chapter 10, 10, Hebrews 11, 6, 2 Peter 3, 9. These are all passages that clearly teach that there has to be an understanding, a confession. A conviction of sin and then the physical act of you deciding to go into the waters of baptism and be immersed well children wouldn't be making those decisions and their parents would be making it for them which is completely opposite of what the scriptures teach so anyhow to finish this up you know as we've been talking about all along it's important to realize that children are not born in sin of course it's based on this doctrine that we've been talking about right total depravity Um, God created mankind as a holy being and in the image of the Godhead. So God, the Father, his son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And then as we also saw in passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 7, mankind on his own rebels and sins against God. So when you read passages like Genesis 1.26, where God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, well, we know that's not a sinful nature. Now, once again, the argument Calvinists will make is, yeah, we agree with that, but Adam ruined it for everybody when he sinned. We were no longer in the Lord's image. That's not what the passages say. God created man upright, Ecclesiastes chapter seven. So that's every man, and each one of us can choose to seek out many schemes. So anyhow, uh, you know, we uh, also just reference Romans three twenty three, right? And, and it's important to realize that. You know, we all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. doesn't say anything about being born into that. So anyhow, as we've touched on choice and everything else that the scriptures teach in this podcast, Jeff, hopefully it's made it clear to everyone that God is just. He has given each, each one of us the mental fortitude and, the you know, given us all the intellect to understand, unless we have some mental problem, of course. But other than that, most can understand clearly what the scriptures teach and then decide on their own if they do or don't want to follow God, which is really who I would rather serve, one who gives me the choice and doesn't force me one way or the other.
1: Right. And we'll talk more about that in a subsequent podcast. You know, as you're referring back to the, uh, the question that, uh, you know, Christopher submitted, you know, you could easily see how uh, a lot of religious groups um, that have subscribed to Calvinism you know, kind of have a legitimate concern over their children, right? Uh, And and why you will often see various doctrines pop up to kind of take care of that concern. You know, you mentioned infant baptism, right? Uh, Which is, you know, never taught in Scripture. But it's it's a man-made attempt to kind of assuage their conscience or their concern, if you will, you know, over the fate of their children. You know, a lot of uh, religious uh, denominations today, you know, do ascribe to Calvin. Or as Calvinism, if you will. And it's somewhat of a little side comment I just thought of. Uh, A lot of them are uh, in many ways pro life, right, as opposed to pro abortion. And if you think of, you know, since the passage, at least in the United States, of uh, Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court, or that decision, uh, now coming up almost 50 years ago, uh, from what I understand, over 60 million children have been aborted. And indeed, if Calvinism is true and they're sinful from the point of conception, sixty million souls lost to hell. and and, and you know there's no choice the, of their
0: own by the way. <laughs> right.
1: And at least on the surface from you know somewhat emotional perspective, that would be terrible. But you know we have confidence, as you said, you know, through the scriptures, that that's not the case, that those who you know die from abortion, those who die from even a miscarriage, those who are born, but you know, shortly you know, die thereafter, uh, are in a somewhat you know safe saved uh, condition, and that uh, until they learn to do you know good and evil, uh, again they're somewhat uh, uh, saved or are safe, if you will. But the bottom line is, we all have sinned; <laughs> those of us of, of an accountable age, and need God's grace. But it's by our by our which is to God's glory, <laughs> that He even bothers with us you know, the supreme creator of the universe, would even bother to, you know, deal with, you know, sinful humanity. So, you know, just tons and tons of, of glory and honor to God, but it is not exclusively God that, there, that he did give us free choice. He did not make us robots, uh, etc. And we'll get into more of this in uh, subsequent uh, broadcasts. Uh, Brian, any other thoughts before we wrap it up for the day?
0: Yeah, one final thought for me, and and that is, you know, if we were to look in civil society, we would all agree that it would be ridiculous is the only word I can think of where we might be held accountable because of our father being a robber. So, hey, your father was a bank robber, so you're going to have to serve time in prison for that, or you're going to have to make amends in some way. We'd all say, well, that's just unfair. That doesn't make any sense. But yet Calvinists would want you to believe that spiritually that's the case. And to your point about these children that were aborted and therefore under their doctrine would be lost, that also would be unfair and ridiculous if you think about it. So anyhow, hopefully our listeners will carefully consider these thoughts. And once again, as we've given you passages, compare it to God's Word to really determine what the truth is on this matter. Right.
1: Appreciate that, Brian. And as always, we'd like to suggest to our listeners that they go to our website at biblequestions.org, where we've got a lot of material. Uh, at this point, I think we're up to like 1,200 different articles and have a, a fair number related to our topic here. If you look under the Topics menu item, you will find C for Calvinism, N for Nature of Man, which is kind of teed into you know Total Depravity. Uh, and finally, I did find one under B, for Bible study, which is kind of a weird place to find it, but in that particular section under B for Bible study, there's a, there's a multi-part series. Uh, in fact, part number 14 on how to interpret the Bible is a special focus on inherited sin. Uh, in fact, the title is Inherited Sin, Are We Sinners from Birth? Again, under topics, B for Bible study, part number 14. And as always, like we said, we encourage our our listeners to go to the website, look at the articles, find the scriptures, open your Bible, read them for yourself, dig into them, and and make an informed decision uh, as to what to believe. Don't just listen to what we have to say. uh, And then actually put that
0: into practice. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.